to be back with you this morning. Uh, I was in College Station, Texas this past week in a meeting. Had a great meeting with the folks there. It's a wonderful church. Chuck Durham is doing the work of an evangelist with the, uh, the saints there. They have, I think, four or five shepherds that work with them there. Uh, a number of deacons. Uh, they have a tremendous college work. It is the home of Texas A&M University. Uh, Texas A&M has about 60-something thousand students, I, I, I believe. But they have, they have about 100 college students that worship with them there. And uh, the college class that I taught, uh, we had about, uh, I don't know, 80, 90, 100 folks in, in the class there. It was a very, very encouraging week. Three baptisms this past week, which was very encouraging. Uh, I, one, of the, uh, one of the college students who's been attending there for a couple of years uh, was baptized this week. And uh, it was just just very, very an encouraging week in, in many, many respects. A lot of connections between this congregation here and folks here and folks out there, uh, especially with the Wrens. I'm, I'm not going to say too much about that, but Chuck Durham has a strong connection to, uh, to the Wrens. So in any event, they all send their greetings. It was a good week. I'm glad to be back with you. And... Uh, Appreciate the opportunity to look at 1 Corinthians 1 with you this morning. The word of the Lord is something very precious to those who know the Lord, uh, to those who love the Lord. As a matter of fact, you just can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ without being someone who loves the book. I'm talking about a true disciple. Uh, Jesus himself said in his own ministry, there, there are many who are going to claim discipleship and they're going to call him Lord. They're not his true disciples. But those who are his true disciples, among other things, they are characterized by a love of his word. You remember Psalm 19 and verse 10. They, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. It's, it's sweeter than a honeycomb. Uh, to us. Psalm 119 and verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Five other times in that psalm. The same expression of joy. Oh, how I love your law. First Peter 2 and verse 2. The newborn babe desires the sincere milk of the word so that he can grow thereby into salvation. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. The apostle Paul warns that one of the telltale signs of those uh, who are not with Christ is that they do not love truth. And Paul warns them there. And it's a little hint to our study this morning. He said, if you do not love the truth, you're not going to have the truth. Because truth is designed by God for those who love truth. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. Word. In John, the sixth chapter, verse, uh, uh, down in verse 66, you remember that there's been the feeding of the multitudes, and then they followed Jesus, and then he began to say hard things to them. And then one by one they went away, and finally he went from thousands of people <laughs> down to his 12. And he said, well, you guys going away too? You, everybody going to leave? Thousands have walked away. Are, are you going to leave too? And Peter's the one who spoke up, and he said, Lord, where are we going to go? You are the ones, you are the one who has the words of eternal life. You can't be a follower of God 
without being one who loves his word. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes a, a, a really a stunning observation right at the outset of this letter to the Christians who are living in Corinth, the southern part of Greece there just below Athens. He says to them, you know, for all of the pride you have as Greek people, for all of your renowned reputation as being wise, important, intellectual, smart, it's incredible in many respects that that so many are not responding to the gospel. And Paul said, I want to tell you why so many folks around you don't believe the gospel. And why they don't love the gospel. Why, why they're not attracted by the gospel. He said, the truth of the matter is, the word of the cross... The gospel. The word of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. Unto those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why is it? Why is it that the gospel can be preached, that God can set forth his word, that God leaves his signature on his creation, and he gives this special revelation by means of his Holy Spirit to the inspired apostles and prophets who wrote it down so that when we read it, we can perceive what is their understanding of the mysteries of the oracles of God. Why is it that some get it and some don't? Why are some attracted to God and others are not? Why do people see the gospel differently? And Paul said, I want to tell you, unbelievers see the gospel differently. First of all, he said, they don't believe because to them the gospel is illogical. It is illogical. For those who trust in human wisdom, and this would be the Greek culture, they were in love with their own minds. For those who highly esteem their own intellect, God said, I, I want to tell you something, the gospel is designed in such a way that that's not the avenue of approach. It's just not. You get on that highway, highway and you start traveling down that road, it's not taking you to the gospel because God never intended that the gospel was going to be a gospel of intellectualism. It's not going to be a gospel that's based on human wisdom, that, that's going to massage and, and, and exaggerate and applaud the, the great minds of the brightest men. It wasn't going to be like that at all. Paul said, here's the problem that unbelievers have with the gospel many times. To them, it is foolishness. <laughs> the Greek word, moria, moros, from which we derive the word, you know, moron. Paul said, the word of the cross is to them that are perishing moronic. It's fit only for morons. In other words, they were saying, you have to be without intelligence in order to embrace this and to believe this. And so 
Paul was a little fond of that word because it was used often in the first century against Christians. And so he's going to use it himself. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, and then in verse 21, and then in verse 23, and then in chapter 2 and verse 14, and chapter 3 and verse 19, that word's just going to show up several times. It is foolishness. It is moronic to them. Why is it that some don't believe the gospel. I'll tell you why. Because in their own human intellect and their wisdom, they sit down, they are going to figure out a way that a spirit God could make a mortal man and this mortal man could find his way back to the spirit God. And this is not what they could come up with in their own mind. And what God came up with is for them foolishness. Foolishness. Secondly, Paul said they don't believe it. Because in a sense, it's not only foolishness to them, it is unattainable. For God said, it is written, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will bring to naught. Unbelievers seek to find answers and truth within themselves. And God said, I'm just going to blow away their way of thinking. They are full of themselves. And they are confident in themselves. And they are never going to find me like that. Never. I, I am not the product of some great Greek sophist. I'm not, God said. And I'm going to destroy that kind of wisdom and that kind of discerning is going to be shown for all of its foolishness. Back in the days of Isaiah, do you remember Isaiah is now living uh, during the days of the fall of the northern kingdom about a hundred years before the southern kingdom is going to fall. He's already pronouncing on the northern kingdom, the Assyrians are coming, you're toast. And he's saying to the southern kingdom, if you don't get your act together, you are going the same way. Isaiah is telling them, God, he said, God is going to deliver his people. He's talking to the southern kingdom now. He's saying, at least for the moment, God's going to deliver you, but human wisdom is not going to figure this out. God's going to deliver you for the moment. The Assyrians are going to take the north. They try to take the southern kingdom. The Assyrians do. Who's going to figure out what God's going to do? How God's going to get his work done? Who in his own human intellect is going to figure out the ways of God in saving his people? Put your brightest minds together and let them discover it. I'll tell you how he did it. In one night, 185 Assyrians died. In one night. Who would have thought that? Who who could have caused that? Who would have believed that? Jeremiah comes along a hundred years after Isaiah, more or less. <laughs> and he says, they've rejected the word of the Lord. What, what wisdom is left? What, what wisdom do they have? And he's not talking about the Assyrians. And he's not talking about the pro-Egyptian party or the pro-Babylonian party or the pro-Assyrian. He's talking about the Jews around him in Jerusalem. They've rejected the word of the Lord. What wisdom do they have Left And so Paul is asking now, we're the wise men. Bring them on. Bring, bring them on. 
God has for centuries taken the wisdom of this world and he's destroyed it. Because his ways are, are not discerned or modulated by the wisdom of the world. Thirdly, some don't believe because to them the story is just unbelievable. The message of the gospel is just unbelievable. In our prayer this morning, as Brother Smith was directing us and we were praying together to God, we were thanking him for the life of Jesus and his death on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead and the supper that we eat in memory of his atoning body and blood. And we prayed together regarding the truth of that gospel, the word of the gospel that God has revealed to us to tell us in his words of wisdom what we need to know and how we appropriate his grace. Where is the wise Where's the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Seeing that in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it was God's good pleasure through the foolishness of the preaching to save them that believe. Seeing that Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto Jews a stumbling block, unto Gentiles foolishness. It's unbelievable. Jesus came into the world. The Son of God who is going to redeem God's people. And He's going to offer Himself a living sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He came into the world and he lived and he died. And the Apostle Paul is saying, here's the problem. The Jews seek after signs. They're seeking after signs. But you know what? Jesus gave them signs. Over and over again. He demonstrated that he is Lord of creation and Lord of this earth. He has power over disease. He has power over demons in the spiritual realm. He has power over nature. He can calm the storms and the seas. He even has power over death. Ultimately, God declared him to be the Son of God with power in raising him from the dead. But what was the problem? <laughs> they couldn't get past the cross. They had been anticipating Messiah for a long time, those Jews. They, they wanted the king to come. They wanted David's son to be raised up by God, to be a great prophet, a great teacher, a, a, a great leader among his people. They wanted him to take charge. They wanted him to be king, but they wanted him to be an earthly king. And they had visions of an earthly kingdom. And they had visions of displacing Rome and becoming a power again as they were in the days of Saul and David and Solomon in the days of the king. They could not get past the cross. Paul said, here's the problem. 
To the Jews is a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, <laughs> moronic. It's foolishness to them. I mean, you think about it. To, to those who were born and bred in the proud Greek culture, they wanted intellectual affirmation of their own wisdom. And, and this is a message. It is a story. It is a narrative about a crucified Jew from an obscure, I mean, even, in, even among the Jews, from an obscure place. Who, who comes from Galilee? Who comes from Nazareth? A, a crucified Jew who came from an obscure place, and he's, he's preaching a message to this nobody people, and the Greeks just said, excuse me, but no way. No way. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, this is ridiculous. This is more right. You're going to tell me how the God who created all of the universe is going to save man from sin? And you're going to tell me about a, a crucified Jew who, who was born in some place that few people ever heard of, much less been to in their whole life? And he, he lives this life in this nothing nation. And his own people rejected him. And the Romans killed him. <laughs> and you're telling me, the Greeks said, you're telling me this is the plan? Are you crazy? Several of you have been to this place in Rome. It's called the Circus Maximus. As you're looking at the Circus Maximus here, the circus was, a, was an arena. Ben-Hur, remember? Uh, it was a great stadium. It's at the foot of the Palatine Hill. If you look to the right, you can see some of the ruins of the ancient Palatine castles of the Roman emperors still standing there. They're excavating in this area now. One of the things they found here in this excavation, as they, this is an ongoing thing, they have just recently uncovered the art, uh, parts of the remains of the Arch of Titus. And somebody said, oh, wait a minute, I, I saw the Arch of Titus over in the Roman Forum, just, just a block or so down the street there. Yes, there was a second Arch of Titus. It was at the Circus Maximus. And these are the remains of it. But... The thing that really matters is that in the ruins there, as they are excavating this second arch of Titus, they found this piece of graffiti. Now, let me say to you, I really want to point to this on the back, but you're not going to see it, so I'm going to point to this. This is, if you go into the museum there at the Palatine Hill in Rome, you will find in the museum this piece of graffiti. It is called the Alexamenos Graffito, the blasphemous graffiti. Alexamenos was, uh, was a, a soldier, a Roman soldier. So this is what you'll see. This is an enhanced copy on paper of this so that you can see the outline a little better. Here's the man, and here's the cross, 
and there is... Uh, what is this? It is the oldest, as far as, as far as we know, it is the oldest depiction in graffiti of Christianity that has been uncovered by archaeology to date. This is the oldest graffiti. They have graffiti on into the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries. and all. This, this dates back earlier than that. It's the oldest piece of graffiti they have ever found that makes reference to Christianity. But the Alexa Minas Graffito says, <clears throat> carved underneath, it says that Alexa worships his God. You see that? Of course, you read it perfectly. But Alexis worships his God. But the crucified God that he is worshiping has a donkey head. You know why, don't you? Because they were making fun of Christians. They were saying, if you believe the story that those guys are telling, <laughs> you are moronic. You, you have a religion uh, of morons. You are, as it were, you are worshiping a donkey head. Brainless, senseless, ridiculous, and shameful. And I'm telling you, the Apostle Paul was saying to these Christians uh, in a Greek culture in the city of Corinth, I understand this is what you're dealing with and this is what you're surrounded with. Why did people not believe? Not only because the culture saw it as ridiculous, but because the culture saw the believers as being nobodies. I mean, they were... <laughs> They, were, they weren't just low class. They, they were no class. They, they saw the people who were following after this Christ as being the dregs of the intellectual world, of the culture. They, they were the scraps. They, I mean, you would throw that out to the dogs. The people who would believe that were just nothing in that culture. And so the Apostle Paul is going to acknowledge that. And he's going to say, behold your calling, brethren. Not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God chose the foolish things of the world, that he might put to shame those that are wise. And he chose the weak things of the world, that he might put to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world. And the things that are despised did God choose. Yea, and the things that are not that he might bring to naught the things that are, so that no flesh should glory before him. A very interesting, very interesting word here. When Paul said he chose the base things. The Greek language, the, the word genos, G-E-N-O-S, genos. It means born. Something that was born of some, to be born. Genos. Agenos or agenes. <laughs> meant things not born. Or meant, meant things that not born doesn't exist. And, and what is he saying? He's saying that the world sees the followers of Christ 
as people who are so ridiculous, it's as if they are so uncountable and unremarkable. They don't even exist. It's not even, it's not even worth talking about them. They're, they're even past the bless your little heart stage. They, they don't have a chance. They're unremarkable. I remember one time my Lord bowed his head. And he lifted up his voice to his father and he said, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and you have revealed it unto babes. And then some don't believe, as Paul goes on to say, because the proponents of the message are really unfashionable. They're, they're out of it. They are cultural misfits. Very, in the Greek culture, very, shall we say, unimpressive. The Greeks had the greatest orators in the world. They had the greatest philosophers in the world. They were proud. They were so proud of their oratory. They were proud of their philosophy. They valued wisdom and they studied wisdom. But listen, they valued oratory. And it, it was possible to fascinate them with your skill in saying something, even if you didn't have much to say. We could say they, they became fascinated with form even over substance. At times. And Paul said, I, I know that when I was with you, when I was among you, I, I did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom to proclaim to you the testimony of God. I did not come to you in the Greek way to impress you. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And let me say to you, that was not the form that was highly esteemed. The Greek orators had a bit of a swagger about them. They were confident, they were arrogant, they were bold, they were ostentatious in their deliveries. They knew how to entertain the people with their speech. Paul said, I want to make it clear from the very outset. You said you weren't impressed when I was among you. Let me remind you of something. I didn't come to impress anybody. I came to deliver a message. A message that the God of heaven clothed his son in flesh and blood and gave him to die in our place so that we could live. And Paul said, quite frankly, if your heart is not touched and turned by that, I have no desire to impress you and I have nothing else to offer you than that. Why is it that some people don't believe Jesus in the parable of the sower? He talked about all the different kind of ground onto which the seed would fall. And then he reminded us at the very end. You know that seed that germinated and it sprung forth and it grew and it bore fruit? This is the one, Jesus said, with the honest and good 
heart. And I'm saying to you this morning that the Apostle Paul was affirming the words of Jesus in this principle when he said, some don't believe. But the reason is because they're coming at this all the wrong way. God's looking for our hearts to respond not apart from but in conjunction with our rational minds so that our will should be motivated to turn and obey and serve. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, what a wonderful opportunity to confess the name of Jesus, to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you're a child of God who needs to come home to the Lord, what a great day to come while we stand and sing.